Welcome to the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast from Ideas to Go. The podcast where we explore what's going on under the radar with non-conscious instincts that trip up innovation and point you to some effective ways around them. Because we want to do the right thing for our customers, we all want innovation to be the big, world-changing thing we hoped it could be. I'm your host, Adam Hansen, and I'll be joined by the best and the brightest in the world of innovation. Come join us in our adventures as we, together, explore how to help you outsmart your instincts. Remember those first few classes in high school or college in some entirely new topic? You're kind of getting it, but the teacher is missing the point that a lot of this is going over even the smartest kid's head. Maybe we catch up a little by the third or fourth class. So when we're the expert, maybe we're happy not to be at the difficult start of the knowledge journey. Communicating with folks on the other side of this knowledge barrier is like speaking another language. We think we're doing great to get back to what it was like before we knew anything about the topic, but there are translation errors. And we have the equivalent of a heavy accent that makes communication tough. It's hard to occupy that space emotionally. It's been so long that fully empathizing with the uninitiated can be frustrating at best. Why don't they get the simplest parts of this? We need to feel what they're feeling. Just feeling bad about not effectively connecting with them doesn't fully do the job. Getting the facts right isn't enough. Making the facts familiar, understandable, and simple is our challenge now. Let's get back to that Greenhorn student we were and try this again. Riffing on Mark Twain's quote, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. When it comes to understanding the disparity between what your customer and you know about most of what you do, keep in mind that it's what you know but have no reasonable expectation that your customer would or should know that gets you in trouble. It's not the customer's job to know the category as deeply as you do. They don't work for you. Sadly, they don't eat, breathe, and sleep your product or category. It might be very important to them, but you think about it more than your most rabid consumers. The curse of knowledge makes it extremely difficult for someone with topic expertise to think about that topic from the perspective of someone with less knowledge. We all suffer from the curse of knowledge whenever we have any sort of experience within a subject and even more so when we have any level of expertise. No matter how hard we try or how much we believe we can mentally put ourselves in the place of not knowing, we simply cannot do it. The metaphor here for the curse of knowledge is revisionist history. We often skip the nitty gritty of history, assuming away the difficulties inherent in getting to the often tidy conclusion of major events. The curse of knowledge prevents us experts from fully appreciating the effort we made to get to the first steps of our expertise. And we tell others and ourselves a different story, which can be frustrating to those at the beginning steps of this journey. Okay, this is the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast. I'm Adam Hansen. I'm joined today by the illustrious Greg Cobb, who is a, a fantastic colleague of mine here at Ideas to Go. Uh, we're going to be talking about the curse of knowledge, okay. which is a really interesting. This sucker is just odd. This is a fun one. Uh, once we get into it, though, um, our experience is, as with most of the cognitive biases, 
people go, oh, that's what that is. Okay, I know what that is. I get that. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, first of all, just love to hear a little bit more. Tell us about you. Tell us about what you love about innovation. Why are you here? I am here uh, because of a creativity conference about a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and since then, um, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, uh, in market research and now uh, six years with ideas to go. And um, I'll tell you, it's, it's a lot of fun uh, getting the opportunity not just to work across categories, but um, to, to really do something different every time uh, I come to work. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, we go through a similar process for some projects, but um, we, every single project is a new problem to solve. Every single project is it's new. It, it's its own topic in some way. Um, and I, I think about my colleagues who um, work on the same thing over and over again. I, I think this is a little more fun. <laughs> that's, that's right. This is, I mean, many of us are, um, I think it's fair to say, some degree of novelty seekers. Yeah. At ideas to go, but there's something really interesting about being able to work on these disparate topics week in, week out, and um, I think we we believe that there's some real value in that because it helps us certainly with the curse of knowledge. We get to see how this plays out and how sometimes how clients trip up against it. Um, but if we're being honest and we're being self-aware, mm-hmm. it also helps us with our own yeah. issue, you know, with the curse of knowledge. Uh, it seems to be human nature to lapse into um, jargon, to lapse into, um, you know, acronyms, to <laughs> just, but, but because, you know, this type of language is, is um, can be really efficient. I mean, it's shortcuts, right? If you're with a group of experts, you're all at more or less a common level of of expertise, uh, going straight into jargon helps you convey more information quickly. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, the moment that everyone in the group doesn't have equal footing with respect to the expertise, then that jargon really can become an impediment. Have you seen clients trip up against the curse of knowledge in any of the projects that you've done? Well, I think it's almost easier to start off with um, my own experiences with the curse knowledge. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, perfect. Especially in the kickoff sessions. Yeah. When we're describing so, what we're going to go through over the course of a week. So this is a great yeah. this is a great point in our podcast to make mention. And you don't know this yet. Yeah. Liza is actually going in after every episode and listening and doing a post-mortem on our own self-inflicted curse of knowledge moments during, oh. the, during the podcast. It's good. And so uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to keep ourselves accountable yeah. to, to this as well. So I like that you're choosing to lead off with how Great. we do that. Right. So the kickoff is the tell folks first with the notion of curse of knowledge, what's a kickoff? Right, right. And then right, how right, is right. as curse of knowledge right, shown right. up there? So, so the idea is, so before a project runs, we have everybody come into... Uh, the meeting, and uh, we walk them through uh, an overview of what we're going to do for, you know, the two days, the three days, the four days, however long the project is. Um, we want to make sure that everybody has a, a high level understanding of what we're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, having you know done this a couple hundred times at this point, <laughs> and so, and especially in the, it's, it's it's I'm guilty of it in the busy season, right? Where you're doing it week after week after week, and uh, I, I go fast anyway. Um, you tend to skip over items that people who are first-time clients are not necessarily going to understand. That's right. And we start to use our own jargon like target area discussion, and we start we talk about high interest lists, and we talk about things like that. And I think that we, you know, we would be better served to use some more natural language in those areas sometimes. But you get stuck with it, and you're looking at that clock, and you say, "Hey, I gotta, I gotta get through this content." Um, and especially if you've got a longer project, where you're going maybe from ideation all the way through to um, reaction groups or even traveling abroad to go do some sort of, you know, half ideation somewhere else. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'm just already uh, appreciating uh, how Liza is going to go back over this and, and, oh, right. and mine. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the <laughs> point, right? Yeah, yeah, like, exa- exactly. Yeah. And I'm trying this, to make it this, succinct. This, this episode right. is going to be so meta. Right. In, right. in terms of this very bias. Well, did, we, did we start out with a definition of the curse of knowledge? Uh, I will in the, oh. in the I do like a like a Brand. like a pre-roll thing Sorry. kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. fair to ask. Yeah. See, obviously, there there I was guilty of assuming that you just knew without without my without without my without ever communicating right. to you how this happens. Yeah. I just assumed that you knew how this happened. Great. Yeah. So with with client teams, I see the curse knowledge come in when we bring them in to work directly with the consumers right away. And they start throwing out terms about their own products that are not necessarily consumer friendly. That's right. Um, I actually this this happened years ago in a different context. It was uh, in focus groups, and we were talking about um, uh, we were talking about like paper towels um, in an institutional setting. Yeah. And um, the client team had brought in several samples, all all uniform. Uh, single ply because well uh, we wanted them to be all uniform and uh, we, we had the respondents who were uh, the people who buy paper towels for institutions um, so the, the head of uh, the janitorial services or they had different titles um, and we said all right what is the the level of quality uh, give it a give it a, a name um, of each of these samples and they were marking them subpar. These are terrible. This is the cheap stuff. This, you know, this is the probably the, the inexpensive things. And um, then we asked them to describe what premium was, and they started describing the, the really heavy. You, you've probably used them before. They feel like napkins. They feel like cloth, yeah. right? That yep. kind of thing. Yep. And the R and D team in the back room from the client is shouting through the mirror that that is the premium stuff, and what they're talking about is ultra premium. <laughs> which is a case where they've made up a classification premium meaning highest in their minds yeah right uh, in, the, in the minds of the, the customer right yeah but the, the clients have, have uh, created another designation ultra premium that is not even in the consumer landscape or the customer landscape and was ultra premium even in their they had the, the, communications, or I don't know. I don't yeah. know about that. But it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. The 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 customers didn't just that that language wasn't well, available but, to them. And there was they another didn't. there was another level of it. You're, you when is the last time you held an unfolded paper towel? You uh, probably haven't. 
Yeah. When you take it out of the machine, it's either it's folded in half or it's trifold or it's something like yeah, that, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So they had stripped away all of the the context for their their premium product and sure. handed it out, and it, it feels it does not feel premium. And so yeah, and so it's it's the the, the customers are now experiencing it in a way that they never would. Right. So it didn't really match. We always try to push for consumer or customer naturalism as much as possible when we're working with them. So right there, it's kind of like, well, yeah. that's weird. Like you're, you're asking me now to think about this in a way that is never going to match how I actually encounter it in the wild. Right. And, and yeah. you know, the, the, but I think that these communication problems in these settings are, are a minor thing. I think where cursor knowledge really gets in the way is... Um, when you're trying to think of new stuff, when you're trying to approach, um, you know, uh, an opportunity from a new angle, it blinds you to the the actual consumer experience, or blinds you to the insights that you need to get to something new. Yeah, there's there's a saying that uh, culture blinds and binds people, okay. right? And I think a key part of that is the mechanism of, of the curse of knowledge. Because you just come to accept this is the way the world operates. Right. And, like, it's hard to imagine how the world operates outside those constraints and outside that paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's absolutely right. Perhaps I can find new ways to motivate them. A, a, a critical part of the curse of knowledge is we get so accustomed. We're very quick to habituate and then accept this is just how things are. And that's hard to remember what it's like before you come to know something, before you're just so immersed in a field of knowledge. Uh, you're talking about stuff all the time. Like, you can kind of remember what it's like before you knew all that. But your version of what being naive to that is super distorted. You're still assuming away so much prior knowledge, even when you try to imagine how to dumb that down to talk about it with with uh, anyone else and uh, that's that's really what what's going on with the curse of knowledge it's just it's really difficult for us to place ourselves back in the position of being totally naive to what we know a lot about what happens a lot of times in if you're if you're in a work group and you're working on a certain product or you're working on a certain category even you take normal words and you have very specific definitions for each one of those words that's so you, right you have a vocabulary that you use and then when you bring it over and you're starting to talk to consumers and when you think that you're talking you hear those words come out of consumers mouths you forget that they have a different definition that's right for those words that's right right yeah and you, you stop being able to hear the normal definition well so it's the, all the, the common use i guess so it's almost like when you go into a new field you should be extra aware mm -hmm. of how language is being used differently than you've, you've ever heard it before. And maybe, and maybe you can almost prep yourself for the curse of knowledge uh, if you understand that, hey, this is, it's going to happen to all of us. It will happen to me again. Even now, the, the kind of the beauty of doing all this work um, attached to behavioral innovation is we become more aware of where this is showing up in our own uh, thinking and um, we're never going to become cured of it. We can just only become more aware of it than try to mitigate yeah. you know, the, the worst effects of it. But maybe by understanding that 
hey, we're all going to still fall prey to this. As we hear new ways of using language, uh, maybe we can kind of flag it and say, all right, that's, that's not common understanding. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why our consumer would necessarily make that leap. Right. Yeah. Right, right. And we're guilty of that when we talk about insights and benefits because we have very specific definitions of insights and benefits when we're writing concepts. But yeah. those, I mean, insight's a pretty broad word. That's there, right. There are many, you know. Well, insights, so, yeah. Yeah, Ramtha is, you know, kind of a great right. a purveyor of insights, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the type of insight we're talking about when we write concepts. So for frozen. So anyone who can channel, anyone who can channel a ten thousand year old guru. Right. Yeah. That's that's what we're essentially talking about. Right. Right. It's a deep process. Yeah. And of course, we invoke Ramtha when we're trying Mm -hmm. to uh, communicate why candy bars are wonderful. Yep. That's exactly (laughs) what we do. Very good. But it's it. I mean, it's just it's human nature to do this. And 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 there's so many examples of. people slamming up against it well it's it's you want to communicate quickly and efficiently and you want to show that you understand what other people are saying to you yeah so um, and I think that you know there's certain um, personality types that are more prone to curse and knowledge than others yeah I think I fall in that well I yeah quickly well I try to get it done um, so you make a couple of assumptions here and there. Yeah. 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 That's good. All right. Um, so anyhow, uh, just be aware. I think if you go in, I think like with, as with many of the cognitive biases, if you just have maybe just a, a low grade paranoia about it and you just know that you are going to succumb to it, that you probably ought to continue exercising some degree of vigilance about it. So even there, vigilance. What are, what are these words? I'm from Idaho. What the hell is that all about? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but just know that uh, as you're going to talk to a group, particularly for the first time or an early time, maybe for the first few times or something, just be especially sensitive to it. There's the whole one of the um, other cognitive biases that we don't talk about is this idea of the mere mention effect. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you really have to hear something new once, twice, probably five to seven times before you really start to grasp it. And that, um, we all can do a better job of remembering that. Again, that's mm-hmm. part of us being so far past that early initiation to something new that it, it's just... You know, like, why aren't they getting this? You know, why do I have to keep repeating it? Uh, it's because you're doing something different. And that's, that's a good thing. But then it, the burden is on you to, to make sure that you're really, yeah. con- you're really conveying that difference in a helpful way, an approachable way, that your, your new audience can, can really mm-hmm. meet you, yep. in, you know, in it. So, all right. Greg, uh, Curse of Knowledge is so pervasive Okay. That there are multiple stories, uh, kind of case studies, cool uh, anecdotes, vignettes where it has shown up. There is this one 
about crazy ants that happened a few, heard about a few years ago. So, uh, pest control guy, not uh, necessarily an expert uh, entomologist, right? Entomologists are the ones who do insects, not etymologists, the people who do word origins, right? Okay. Is that how that I'm works? I'm going to trust you on that one. Ent, entomologist, okay. not etymologist. Yes. I, I, I try to always remember right. the, the distinction there. So, so an etymologist discovered them. That is the twist. So an it? etymologist yeah, okay. right, discovered yeah. No, this guy was a, just a, a, a kind of a, an old school pest control guy. And this is down in Texas. And he started noticing a different breed of ant that was uh, becoming an issue. Mm -hmm. Not small infestations, massive infestations billions of ants uh, but bad news ants mm -hmm. and uh, they've they've come actually to be called crazy ants uh, now I think they call them like tawny crazy ants or something like that but um, this guy was just he, he wasn't uh, an expert he wasn't uh, you know in charge of the official taxonomy for uh, ant species or anything like that uh, he was actually the one who kind of cracked the code on what was going on with these ants. And uh, the curse of knowledge seemed to be a huge contributing factor. Um, so, you know, jump in any, any point here that... What I took from this was that it was kind of the, the forest for the tree versus the trees. Yeah. Right? So what, uh, the, the story, I think, was these ants appear in the billions. Yeah. And they're attracted to electronics and they're attracted to expensive things. And they fill them up in this kind of crazy, insane swarming behavior. Yeah. And then they short circuit and burn to death. And there's piles of dead ants inside your electronics, and that's expensive. And um, so when this started happening, and, and not just your electronics, but just piles and piles around people's homes and things like that, right? Yeah. Really disturbing stuff, imagery. Um, so people went through the normal channels to try to classify them as an invasive species, sent samples away to the government who put them in front of these, um, you know, bug scientists, um, who immediately started looking at the, the characteristics of the individual ants to try to place them within the taxonomy, right? Yeah, and within the taxonomy, so they right. so figure out how to, uh, how to get rid of them. Meanwhile, yeah. our, our, our pest control guy who deals with lots of ants um, in uh, Texas, right? Yeah is looking at the behavior and saying, this is not the normal thing. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the people studying the bark on the trees go and say, hey, um, this is the same thing as uh, these ants that have been uh, in Florida since the 50s. And this guy's going, well, there aren't billions of them in Florida burning out TV sets, so it's <laughs> not. Right? Uh, so, you know, he's, he's got his own expertise um, but he was kind of—he didn't have the same uh, structure and process that they needed to follow. Yeah, it's—it's right. it's the idea that that um, your expertise, your paradigm, has brought you to the party, and and up to a certain point, continues to serve you awfully well. Yeah. Then something weird happens. And that seems to be what the issue was here. And so there's a great quote. It's in the New York Times from uh, 2000, December 5th, 2013. We'll put a link in the, in the show notes. 
Um, it says, and I quote, as long as there's evidence that the ants in Texas were this species and not something new, the government felt it was reasonable not to act right. because they knew what that species did. And yet there's already this ample evidence that that's just not how, that, that, right. how they were acting at all. Right. Well, I, there, I, there's also, this highlights different um, incentive structures, right? Yeah. So in this case, the government is disincentivized to act because it, it's more money and it's a sticky problem. Yeah. Um, whereas this other guy, he's incentivized to act because, well, he makes a living that way. And it's hidden him directly, as in ruining his stuff. It's ruining his stuff. It's ruining the stuff all amongst his customers, yeah. his whole service area. <clears throat> and he sees it spreading. Yeah. So this is, this is not just a, you know, invasive species. That's not a new thing. And right. this guy has been through that. He's seen that a few times. But this was, this was totally different. Another quote from the article uh, where this, they said, you know, the taxonomy th- uh, thing was almost a joke if it weren't so serious. And again, it's where your knowledge can so bind and blind you that it's just hard to conceive of, of any other explanation. Right. And so that's really, this is almost like the, you know, the, the, some of the harshest examples of the, of the curse of knowledge in place. Um, so, just one key point. Finally, uh, the you know the, the guy is able to make the case, and for a while they were actually uh, named after him, uh, Raspberry, Crazy Ants, not the fruit, the guy's last name. So uh, there's a reason they call them Crazy Ants. Crazy. All right. Uh, another interesting article. <laughs> Here's Greg. Um, some breakthrough developed uh, software developed at Israel's Technion, uh, slated to make scientific research accessible to the wider public in ways that never was before. There's actually a thing now called the de-jargonizer. All right. And uh, let me just read you this here, and we'll, we can discuss this some. Uh, scientists, uh, when scientists write to the general public, so we're seeing now. Uh, let me just backtrack a little why it's important that uh, the public be more scientifically literate, right? Right. Uh, we don't have to get too political here or anything, but um, hey, have there been a couple of hurricanes? Right. Is some weird stuff been going on? Well, I mean, even, uh, even beyond that, every single person is using satellites every day, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, you can't help but interact with um, higher level science. Like back in the day. Yeah. Newton ground his own lenses. And oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. He could get by as a dirt farmer without, <laughs> you know, shoes. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm back in the day. I mean, you know, the point made that, uh, you know, the average uh, individual in the 18th century uh, faced a lifetime data collection burden that was, uh, that's less than the, the average content of a Sunday edition of the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I mean, it's just, and that's just, you know, mm-hmm. we know what's going on now with that. So, um, when scientists, so it's important that we, that, that we be, you know, have at least, a, we, we become increasingly scientifically literate so that we can, um, you know, we ought to be engaged and, you know, we shouldn't 
this is a place where it's good to continue to have some expertise, but we shouldn't continue just to leave it up to other people to make some of these biggest decisions. Anyhow, uh, the finding of some data done by these good folks in, in Israel at Technion was that uh, when scientists write to the general public, one in 10 words was unfamiliar jargon. So 10%, 10% unfamiliar jargon. Previous studies have shown that in order for the text to be understood, however, the reader needs to recognize at least 98% of the words. So uh, scientific findings being released onto the public that are at best 90% understandable aren't understandable because the threshold okay. is 98%. So uh, these good folks now developed an app that now the scientists can pass their communications through and it can flag jargon. And it can say, okay, stop, <laughs> explain this. Right, right. No one in your audience has any reason to know what that is. There should be no expectation that anyone is going to know that. What I like is the idea here of science being able to help us uh, get past the curse of knowledge. And so I, I'm, these were scientists, think about this, these were scientists who already knew what they were doing. They weren't writing right. it for their peers. They were writing it for a lay audience. Right. And yet, and, and maybe not doing too bad. You know, so, you know, it would have been, I'm sure, worse on the de-jargonizer if they took, uh, you know, kind of peer communications. Yeah. Uh, but again, amongst peers, that jargon is efficient. And it's tedious to, you know, have to go back and explain. Right. Well, the peers have enough. They know. They know what not just what the words mean, but the implications. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they they say, okay, I, I read this this technical description. I know what that means for me. Yeah. From my experience. Methylation of RNA. Right. Don't know. What, <laughs> don't know what that means. What's it mean for me? Do I get to stay alive if, yeah, if I'm methylating right. my RNA? That's right. Okay. Can I do it at home? Right? Soon. Right. Soon you can methylate your own RNA at home. All right. Thank God. So, um, but that, you know, and that's one thing that we, I feel like we do a decent job of pushing for in our projects is when we get to the point where we, we say, all right, we got to describe the ideas that, you know, we come up with yeah. so that we can you know, get them out into the real world, however that is, you know, consumer testing or whatever. We're always pushing to say, all right, describe the experience, don't list the features. Yeah. Right? Because a list of the features is great if you understand the product and if you know exactly what that means. Yeah. Right? That's right. Right. So, you know, you know, a high, uh, high-flavored slurry is, sounds <laughs> delicious. <laughs> Right, and that's and we're gonna have to edit that one out because I don't even think that's real jargon. But the, the, the point, you know, you can talk about your product all day long, and and you can talk about it in very efficient ways. But um, the, the people that you're talking to don't really care about the features. They care about what the features do for them. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the places where our clients get tripped up, and we get. I mean, we still we get tripped up in uh, the curse of knowledge is assuming that people understand how features and technical details of products ladder up to what you get. Yeah. How it's going to change yeah. your day, right? Not that, even that's what you get. It's right. just obvious. Therefore, you right. get blank. Right. Yeah. 
Right. And that's because we do that all the time. And so it's very easy for us to connect those dots. And that's what this is all about. It's about dot connecting uh, and, and not putting too much of a, a burden on people to dot connect. You know, there's the, uh, Einstein had some quote about, um, about simplicity. I think it was Einstein. We'll go back. This might be an edit. Um, but the idea of uh, not being so interested on the simplicity, this side of complexity, yeah. but being really, really interested in the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Mm-hmm. And I, in many cases, that's what we're talking about here. The reason why cursive knowledge comes up is because you are talking uh, at issue are more complex ideas. Uh, ideas that the naive would ha- there's no reasonable expe- ex- uh, expectation that that they should know anything about it. And so, how to get to that simplicity on the other side of complexity, and not get so just caught up in the complexity itself that you forget that uh, that that complexity only has value to the uninitiated if you can then distill back to right the level that they can absorb it right yeah right. cool so de-jargonizer always maybe uh, question you know if you're about to communicate to a group yeah maybe this should be this low-grade paranoia you know I'm likely what I'm about to say is likely to go over the heads of some of them and this isn't a this isn't being um, braggadocious or anything like that. This is just being. This is just recognizing that what you're really good at is not what everyone does. Missed it by that much. Another tip here. This is good. Is to is to just really think through where your audience is in terms of that knowledge and specialization. Uh, there's the idea that the more knowledge you have as a communicator about a given topic, uh, the less accurate your assumptions are going to be about how transparent that is to uh, a given crowd. Uh, and so um, maybe do some, you know, some testing. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe find a small sample, maybe run it by some people. You don't want to, you don't want to, certainly what we're talking about here mainly is about overshooting and assuming away too much prior knowledge. Uh, you don't want to undershoot either. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to patronize. You know, you don't, you don't want to condescend. You don't want to waste, you know, anyone's time. Uh, but that seems to be much less of a problem, particularly in our business, when we're talking about how clients communicate with their customers. Mm-hmm. So just be aware that there, there is... Um, a certain uh, kind of inverse relationship <laughs> on knowledge and the accuracy of your assumption about how easy it's going to be for your audience to uh, connect with with what you're laying out. So that's just an, uh, that's that's one th- one way to go about it. So some thoughts on that is to use analogies. Uh, write out what you're going to write and then get some distance from it for a bit and come back to it with some fresh eyes and then really you know, radically you know, practice some empathy and try to put yourself in the position of uh, the person who doesn't know it as well as you do. You know, read it out loud, etc. All these 
kinds of things that you know we've all heard before, but just kind of in the moment when we're trying to communicate, that can be rather difficult to make sure that we're being effective at communicating. Greg, it has been uh, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank right. you so much. Thanks for having me in. Absolutely. This has been the Curse of Knowledge episode of the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hansen. Until next time, keep at it, keep innovating, keep embracing that original insight, that original wonder and delight that got you into that game of innovation. And uh, we're going to continue to help you liberate yourself from some of these non-conscious biases so the innovation can be the great experience that we all know that it really should be. So until next time. Do you have a sign-off? That's we're trying to. I don't know. We, we're still working <laughs> <Yeah>. on that. <laughs> Thank you all. See, we knew it was the end. We know it's the end. But yeah, that's it. They didn't know. <laughs> all right. Take care, folks. Thank you. Central to the curse of knowledge is that we're assuming away a lot of prior knowledge and basic knowledge. We just can't place ourselves back in the shoes of those who are totally naive to the topic that we're working on. Uh, and so our version of dumbing it down is still too advanced. So there's this communications and understanding barrier between us as experts and those people that we're trying to reach who are just you know starting this knowledge journey. So one key move we can make is what we call assumption busting. So we're assuming away a lot of knowledge. So let's really list out all the assumptions that we're making. And what's fun about this is that nothing is too obvious. You can go to the things that are such a no-duh about your topic and list them. And odds are it's been so long since you've thought through some of the, the most basic points or the most basic assumptions about your topic nor has your competition probably, so that when you come back to this now with fresh eyes, there really is uh, a wonderful opportunity to uh, move forward with some, some freshness and, and see if you can't entirely get past the effects of a given assumption, at least you can be more creative about how you deal with it. So list all the assumptions about your topic, Nothing is too obvious. In fact, make a point to go after the most obvious things. And then you can take them one by one and say, okay, what can we do with that? If it's not just entirely doing away with the assumption, you can maybe at least relax the strongest effects of it or just play with it and see now with that as a focal point what you might be able to do. If we are innovating on pancakes, for example, we might say things like, uh, for assumptions that pancakes are, uh, they start with a viscous liquid batter. Uh, they are poured onto a hot surface. They tend to use a grain-based flour as the, the main ingredient, et cetera, et cetera. You can take each one of those then and say, well, what can we do with that then? And so now, starting with a uh, liquid viscous batter, you could play with that. You could say, well, what if it were even thinner? What if it were even thicker? Uh, what if you, we could actually 
hold the batter and form it and not go to a, what is essentially a pretty much a, a two-dimensional output, but actually model it somehow and make it into a more deliberately three-dimensional uh, finished good, et cetera, et cetera. Again, some of these assumptions are hard to think about because they're just so basic and they're just such a given and such a no-duh that by really making the effort, tapping into system two and digging in to think about some of those can yield some fantastic results because odds are your competition is not doing the same kind of work. So assumption busting, ninja move to combat curse of knowledge. Hey, y'all, it's Liza again. I just want to say thanks, Adam, for the shout out during this extremely, extremely meta uh, episode of our podcast. Um, This is, of course, where I talk about our self-inflicted curses of knowledge in the curse of knowledge episode of our podcast. Um, I feel like now I could just keep calling myself the de-jargonizer because that's a new nickname that'll stick. Um, And speaking of jargon and shortcuts, we actually call these segments that I do our own sick notes, sick as in self-inflicted curses of knowledge. You get it. It's pretty meta today. So let's dive in. When Greg says he works across categories, he means the different industries our clients come from, whether that's consumer packaged goods or financial services or pharmaceuticals. Um, Categories in this case means industries. In case you listen to these podcasts out of order, um, by projects, we mean the innovation work we do with clients. Uh, We usually spend a few days generating ideas and crafting solutions together, either in person or online. Um, usually about a specific initiative that they are trying to work through. And of course, by clients, we mean people and companies who work with ideas to go, many of whom are on the Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 lists. Since Greg already explained kickoff sessions, I won't go into that one, but he also mentioned target area discussions and high interest lists. These are our jargony things that basically mean zeroing in on a theme to generate ideas around. That's a target area. And by high interest list, we mean the ideas that get the majority of votes after idea generation is complete. And of course, idea idea generation, we also call ideation. Um, It's usually the first part of one of our innovation projects. Uh, We also mentioned reaction groups. These are focus groups. Uh, Most people know them as um, your standard group of people getting together to give their opinion on an idea or a concept. Uh, We call them reaction groups. By Ramtha, Adam and Greg are referring to a spiritual enlightenment entity that spawned a spiritual sect uh, in the state of Washington, or so Wikipedia tells me I did have to look that one up. Um, methylating on your own RNA, I, I got nothing. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, and we'll end this by letting everyone know that Adam was almost right about the simplicity quote. In fact, it wasn't Einstein, but Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. who said, For the simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that, I would give you anything I have. Thank you for listening. 
Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. We are ideas to go We love innovation and serving our clients. For more information about us, check us out at www.ideastogo.com as well as outsmartyourinstincts.com. Stay tuned for further explorations and people being liberated to do innovation right on the next episode of the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast.